1: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. my pronouns are she, her, hers, and today I'm joined by Justin Canu, Democratic nominee for Congress in Tennessee's seventh. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your primary.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, we're glad to have you. So Justin, your district is considered pretty solidly red. Donald Trump won it in 2016 by 39 points, and no Democrat has been elected to this seat since 1980. What's different this year and why are you the right person to bring change to the 7th?
2: Well, let me first say that you're absolutely right about everything you just said. This is definitely a solidly conservative seat for a long time now. But the one thing I will say is that we've already mounted more of a campaign than a Democrat has run here in a really, really long time. I've raised more money than the last six or so Democrats combined. That's over $300,000 in grassroots donations without taking any PAC or special interest money. We've been endorsed by Indivisible National. There's a lot of energy here on the ground right now. And so what I would say is that the wind is blowing in this country, and it's also blowing in Tennessee. And even though the numbers don't look like they're in our favor, with all the different people moving to Tennessee and especially our district in the last Decade or so. I just think people don't really know what's here with the seat open Marsha Blackburn moving on to the Senate seat and with the Republicans running a guy like Mark Green who I think is a pretty extreme Choice for their nomination I think we have a real chance especially with a guy like Phil Bredesen at the top of the ticket and Carl Dean running for governor So we're gonna do everything we can to run hard and motivate people and as for the second part of your question what makes me the right person for this job? I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a union member. I'm not taking any PAC or special interest money. I'm not afraid to say what needs to be said. And I think people are looking for people who aren't necessarily career politicians that are willing to stand up for what's right and at the end of the day, I believe the real dividing line is not between Democrat voters and Republican voters. It's between special interests and the people. And I have three months to get out there, talk to the people who don't agree with me about every single thing, and remind them that I'm fighting for them too. I'm, I'm not fighting for health care for Democrats. I'm not fighting for better wages for Democrats. I'm not fighting for equal rights for Democrats. I'm fighting for everybody. And I think if people give me a chance and get to know me, they'll come to find out that I'm on their side, and that I seek to be a bridge builder and return us to civility in a way that Mark Green, who was too extreme for the Trump administration and who backed Roy Moore down in Alabama, is not. What you just said
1: reminded me a lot of what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said about the two-party dynamic, which is that it's not about red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican. It's about top versus bottom. It's about these special interests versus the working people. Could you tell us about why your policy platform is so good
2: for working people, how it would help the people of your district. Sure, so the things that we're fighting for, and you mentioned Alexandria, I mean the things that a lot of us in the Democrat party, especially the ones that maybe are the underdogs, are fighting for are things that I believe will legitimately help people. When you talk to people throughout the district and when you see what people are struggling with, a lot of people don't have simple things like Health coverage, which is so important. It's such a source of stress for so many people. So when you have enough people that are running on a platform of let's get everybody in this country covered, that's something that will tangibly affect their lives. Raising the minimum wage will tangibly affect people's lives tax reform, which we missed the opportunity to actually help working families in this country, and we saw tax reform that helped the top and corporations, tax reform really could have helped the working families of this country. Standing with unions and strengthening unions helps everybody. So these are things that I believe that tangibly help people. And then more specifically, things like national rural broadband platform that would help rebuild rural communities where not only are they losing out on municipal broadband and rural broadband thanks to votes that Mark Green has cast, their hospitals are closing so just basic things that we need to give people especially in the rural parts of this country and and our state just to allow them to compete and allow investment to happen where they live so these are things that i believe will help working families And these shouldn't be partisan issues. So many of the things that we're fighting for, if you look at the numbers, people on both sides of the aisle believe in them and agree with them. And we may not agree with how to get there with some of these things, and that's the conversation we should be having. But when we focus on the wedge issues, when we focus on the things that drive us apart, that's how we get further and further from the ultimate goal of putting more money in people's pockets, giving people health coverage they need, and getting people real things in their lives that we need to get them. As you said, you're not taking any PAC or
1: special interest money, which is a great pledge that many newcomers to politics have made to guarantee that they won't be corrupted and will put their constituents first. Another pledge many have made is term limits, which are designed to ensure that nobody loses touch with their district spending decades as a member of Congress. Do you support term limits, and if so, what should the limit be for the House of Representatives?
2: So I talk a lot about the special interest and no pack money pledge. and and the reason is because to me, so many of the issues that we face come down to entrenched special interests and why we can't actually move forward. So that's why I talk about so that so much. And another part of that, I'm glad you mentioned term limits. I've actually signed a term limits pledge. I think what ends up happening is a lot of representatives get to Washington, they get comfortable, and they forget where they came from and they stop listening to the people. So I absolutely believe in term limits. I think if it's good enough for the president, it should be good enough for the rest of Congress. The pledge that I signed was three terms of two years. I actually think two years is a pretty short term and i think the minute congress people get into office they have to start thinking about campaigning again so i'd like to see their terms be a little bit longer but their limits be more be uh more stringent so i think two terms of three is okay three terms of two might be okay but the bottom line is let's talk about how to put term limits on congress because they get far too comfortable when they get in there and they stay there for 16 years the way marsha blackburn has what started me down this road was a press uh, was a town hall that Marsha Blackburn did in the town called Fairview near here, where she went and got it pretty bad. And then she went on CNN and said, those people weren't even from her district. Well, they were from her district. They had been videotaped, raising their hands, saying they were from her district and they had been ID'd at the door. And so that was the kind of thing I think happens when you get too comfortable. And that's what started me down this road. And we need politicians and representatives and Congress people who are going to continue to listen to people and who are going to be worried about, about their jobs and who are not going to be so comfortable that they feel invincible, and that's what a lack of term limits provides them.
1: So should you be elected, one of the first decisions you'll have to make, and one of the biggest, is who you support for Speaker of the House. Now, of course, we do not know all of the options we'll have in 2019, but we do know that Nancy Pelosi is gonna give it another shot. What are your thoughts on Pelosi And do you have any feelings about whether you
2: would support her or not? So I get this question a lot. Here are my feelings about voting for speaker. I think right now congressional gridlock is one of the biggest problems we face. I think Congress can be held hostage by a minority far too easily by a vocal minority. I think if a bill has majority support in Congress, it should be required to come to the floor for a vote. So what I've decided is I... I'm not going to support a speaker who doesn't support changing the rules to make it so that if a majority of Congress supports a bill, it comes to the floor for a vote. I think if enough people get in there and decide that we're going to change that rule, then we can strike a big blow to undoing partisan gridlock in Congress. So. Regardless of who's in there, we need to change that rule. It, it come, there, it's a little bit complicated, but it comes back to a thing called the Hastert Rule, and it needs to be changed. We need bills that have majority support in Congress to come to the floor for a vote. That's how I'm answering that question. So one of
1: your big platform planks is in regards to our justice system. It covers medical marijuana legalization. It covers ending mass incarceration. Could you tell us about that and what exactly your proposals are?
2: Sure. Well, starting with the first thing you mentioned, I'm a big believer in legalizing medical marijuana and decriminalizing it. The fact that marijuana is treated at the same level as heroin and other strong drugs is an abomination. We have so many people who are hurting in this country that could benefit from the benefits of medical marijuana, CBD oil, and we need to move forward on this so i'm a big believer in legalizing medical marijuana i'm a big believer in alternate pain medications it has a lot to do with the opioid crisis which hits us really hard here in tennessee and so i think this is something that we're moving in the wrong direction when we look at what sessions and and this administration are doing we need to decriminalize it we need to focus on getting people the, the help that they need especially in places like clarksville which here in tennessee has a big military presence Up there, we hear all the time from veterans who feel like they could be helped, their PTSD could be helped by legalizing medical marijuana. So that's something that I want to help push for. I think it's time. There are Republicans in our state legislature who agree this, again, should not be a partisan issue. So that's something that I talk about a lot. And then along with that comes decriminalizing it. We've seen too many families broken up. By people who get thrown in jail and locked up for long periods of time for nonviolent drug offenses. This affects things all the way down to the family unit. This affects schools. This affects the school to prison pipeline. So, you know, right now I think our incentives, especially with this uh, mass incarceration and for-profit prison system, it gives people an incentive to lock people up for things that they're they're not actually that are not actually warranted. So these are things that we need to speak up about. These are things that we need to look at and figure out what we're doing. There's there's a lot of, of moving parts to it, but generally speaking, we need to decide that nonviolent drug offenses are things that we need to stop decriminalizing. When it comes to addiction, with the opioid crisis, we need to treat it like a disease and a mental health issue and not try to jail our way out of it. Too often, we're using our prisons as mental health facilities. So I think we also need to start thinking preventatively. My wife's a behavioral therapist for kids with autism and mental health issues. We give up on kids too quickly, generally speaking. We need to start investing in presenting the resources up front to help people deal with the issues that they face. And all of these things are connected.
1: Absolutely. So, would you support expunging the records of nonviolent drug
2: offenders? I think it depends on the offense, but generally speaking, I, I would. I think we get talked, we talk a lot about especially felons and when they serve their time, can they become full citizens and vote? And I think when it comes to certain offenses, absolutely I'm for that. I think we need to let people rebuild their lives. I think we need to help people when they're inside in jail, figure out what they're going to do when they get out and stop recidivism that way. So yes, I I generally do support it. Now, I don't want to say I support it you know, entirely because there may be things that not that are non, considered nonviolent drug offenses that, you know, whether it be dealing or trafficking that, you know, maybe don't warrant the same treatment. But generally speaking, I think the war on drugs has been a failure. I think we've, we've over-incarcerated, especially our minority populations, and we need to move in the other direction and, and do it in a humane way, focused on allowing people to rebuild their lives when they've served their time.
1: So you're actually beating me to some of my questions. So I'd like to look at the nationwide prison strike demands. Demand number two is, quote, an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. Now, this has been something that's been discussed for a while because when it comes to the abolition of slavery, the one exception in the amendment was for prisons. And as you mentioned, minorities are overwhelmingly targeted by the criminal justice system. Would you say you would support this second demand from the prison strike to end prison slavery?
2: As far as ending prison slavery, absolutely. It's a major issue, and it's definitely a, a sad state of affairs that we've allowed this to continue. Uh, you mentioned the demand and asking for wages. Uh, you know, I, I need to look at it, but generally speaking, I understand the issue. I understand that this is the one exception in our country where we've allowed slavery to continue. I think it has a lot to do with, with you know, why we see mass incarceration and, you know, I, I just think we, we absolutely need to call it what it is and we need to battle against it. So, you know, I don't want to say which policies I would or would not support right now. I need to look further into it, to be honest with you, but generally speaking, it's it's an absolute atrocity that we allowed it to continue this long, and it's something that we definitely need to address.
1: So you mentioned the Hastert rule earlier. I'd like to talk about the man that it's named after, Dennis Hastert, who is an admitted, self-admitted sexual abuser. That really couldn't be more relevant right now, given the countless breaking stories of sexual abuse by politicians, abuse that has not been held accountable in Washington, abuse that has been paid off using taxpayer money what would you do in Washington to support survivors and victims of sexual abuse and fight against rape culture?
2: Well, first of all, any taxpayer money that's been used to pay off abuse victims needs to be made public and paid back. That practice needs to stop, and then it's something that we need to invest in. We need to invest in education. We need to make sure that domestic abusers are not able to get guns, for crying out loud, and there's so much that we need to do to reverse this trend. But the, the thing that heartens me the most is how many strong women are running for office across the country, how many minorities are running for office across the country. So I believe we're heading in the right direction. And I'm so in, amazed to see how many powerful women have stood up and spoken out. I want to be there to help them and make sure that they have a platform and they have a voice. And then I also want to make sure that domestic violence offenders cannot get their hands on weapons because we've seen too often that... Domestic violence and gun violence go hand in hand.
0: I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com millen politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Justin, perhaps the biggest
1: issue of our time, one that I think speaks to the fundamental character of our nation, is immigration. And now I'd like to go back to 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act, because that is what criminalized undocumented status and put detention and deportation under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fang YuTing decision, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, and property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment, and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Would you agree with the dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act, and what would you do in Congress? To decriminalize migration and disentangle immigration from these white supremacist policies that define our system to this very day.
2: Wow. Well, uh, let me just tell you my story, and so you can know sort of where I'm coming from with that. I am the grandson of two Holocaust survivors who brought my mother over from Germany when she was three years old. So when I see what's going on at the border, I think that this could easily be my grandparents and my mother. I think that. Even though I am not for open borders, I think any strong borders or any border policy should be done in a humane way. Plenty of people are coming here with very real problems, very real asylum seeking uh, cases. And so we need to come at this from a humane perspective. The notion that we are under attack is just not borne out by facts. You know, I, understand that there are people with real issues and real concerns about what undocumented immigrants may do to their wages and to their jobs but we have been in a situation for too long where they have been made out to be the enemy and we absolutely need to push back against that notion these are people who are here especially in the case of the dreamers sometimes for their entire lives and they're americans too and they need to be treated as such so i believe that at some point there has to be some sort of comprehension, immigration reform and deal. I think that we may have to give a little, you know, when it comes to border security and that there are things that we need to do, but we shouldn't be building shrines to someone's ego. We should be following the lead of border patrol and understanding what their needs are to control the border. But. This is not the fault of these people who are coming here for a better life. My grandparents came here for a better life. We need to understand this country was built by immigrants. We need to push back against any policy that is against anybody of any religion and targeted at people. And generally speaking, this is the core issue of our time because, you know, the fear mongering that goes on when it comes to immigration is something that is completely un-American. It pits us all against each other and it's, pushing on a pressure point that this country has had for far too long. So, you know, I think if we really wanted to do something about immigration, they would focus more on the magnet that brings people here, which are the workers that hire people, but they don't really want to do that. They want to fear monger and win elections and act like the world is ending. The world is not ending. Immigration is a core part of this country. This country needs to stand up for the things that have made it great. And nothing is more American than being a melting pot and being a place where people come when they don't have anywhere else to go. So you know i understand that your question was a little more specific and targeted than that but i just wanted to tell you kind of where i'm coming from and how i see things because at the end of the day if you're either seeing the enemy in people who don't look like us and who are coming from other places or you're not and you know i think that is the guiding light that that guides our policies and our positions when it comes to this issue and i am not somebody who wants to vilify people that are coming here for a better life i think that there are real issues that people have with immigration and there are real concerns that people have but we need to make sure that we're dealing in facts and not in myths
1: there is a movement right now to remove immigration agencies from the department of homeland security prior to that for Almost all of United States history, they existed under the Department of Justice, which is a department ideally dedicated to due process. By placing them under the Department of Homeland Security, you are labeling immigrants as a national security threat. Would you support putting immigration agencies back under the Department of Justice?
2: I'd have to look at that a little bit more. I understand what you're saying, and I understand that the spirit of having as a part of Homeland Security is you know you're right at what it ends up making immigrants feel like and the entire situation is ugly and needs to be addressed for sure we, we don't want to be in a situation where we're treating anybody who comes here like a terrorist and that's happening because the roots of the entire situation are 9-11 and, and you know that's where this was all born so it's coming from a fear and we need to make sure that our, our policies are pointed in the right direction and, and we need to rethink everything that we're doing so, you know, I agree with you that maybe moving it to the Department of Justice may be the right thing to do. I understand that this whole thing needs to be looked at, but we have to be careful about being painted as the open borders group. You know, that is not what most Democrats I know want. We just want to be looking at this from a hum- through a humane lens. And so, you know, that's kind of how I come at it. W- what would actually change if we, if we move ICE to the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, that, that I'd have to look at. But you know the thing that we've seen time and again is that ICE has now become a department that even law enforcement agencies locally don't want anything to do with because what ends up happening is their citizens don't want to deal with them because they become afraid. And that opens up an opportunity for the wrongdoers in our society. So you know, I know people, I'm up against a guy who, you know, he's on the opposite side of this whole thing. He introduced a, a Sanctuary Cities bill here, even though we don't have Sanctuary Cities that threatens to take money away from municipalities that don't cooperate with ICE the way the way they want to. I know Republican mayors who don't like that bill call it a bad bill. So, you know, we have to be careful about the side effects of, of some of the legislation that's being proposed. And ultimately what's really going on, it's a vilification of, of people who don't look like us. It's a there's a lot of, of, of ugly, ugly roots in what we're seeing. And so we need to make sure that everything we're doing, we're doing with humanity at its core, and we need to understand that everything has ramifications. You know, but at the same time, we also have to understand that there are a lot of people who the fear-mongering has worked on. So we need to make sure that we understand you know, that they're not coming from an evil place always, that you know, they just feel like some of their jobs are being taken, the wages are being kept down, and we need to address these things with facts. And so I don't know if, if moving ICE to the Department of Justice will fix anything, but I do know that we need to focus on criminals, stop tearing families apart, stop locking kids in cages, stop separating families at the border, and that everything we do, we need to do with our American ideals at heart. Justin,
1: a lot I'd like to follow up on. For the sake of time, we will wrap up, but I thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, and I would love to follow up with you after you win in November.
2: Absolutely, and let me say one last thing, uh, my feeling is that the more in tune Young people like yourself are with what's going on in this country. They're better off. We're going to be, I've been traveling the district trying to visit with as many high schools as possible. Not that you're a high schooler, but we just need young people involved. We need young people doing things like this podcast. We need young people running for office. We need young people volunteering and it's the young people that are going to save this country. So I appreciate that you're as engaged and as smart and as knowledgeable about the issues as you are. And I really hope that it spreads. I hope people get out there and vote people are more powerful than they realize especially young people and you know we we just really have to understand how powerful you guys really are because this our representation does not represent what is really here in this country and we need, it's time for young parents to step up it's time for young people to step up and it's time for us to take some ownership over the direction this country's headed in
1: absolutely and to our listeners make sure to follow millennial politics on social media support us through our patreon Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast to hear another interview with great candidates like Justin. Thanks for listening.